And now it's time for the Fiasco Family Movie Night. Welcome to episode 59 of the Fiasco Family Movie Night. I'm Sean Frost. And I'm Tim Leonard. And tonight we're going to talk about The Devil's Reign from 1975, written by Gabe Esso, James Ashton, and Gerald Hopman, and directed by Robert Faust. Tim, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit what it's about? Very well. Mark Preston arrives at his parents' place in Mapspec, Arizona, I think, during a thunderstorm. Dad's missing and mom and uncle or grandpa are talking cryptically about the book, which Mark says Corbus will never get his hands on. Then his dad wanders in from the storm, missing his eyes and melting in the rain like he was a sugar golem. He says Corbus is on his way and Mark runs out with a gun to confront whoever that is. His plan is bad, and he should feel bad about it. Corbus or his hench kidnap his mom and beat up his grandfather or possibly uncle. Uh, Mark goes out to an abandoned church in neighboring Redstone the next morning to get all up in Corbus's grill. He meets the guy who talks with him about getting his hands on the book. Mark winds up in a challenge of faith, his loudly Christian faith, against Corbus, who uses illusions to trick Mark out of his ashtray-sized protective amulet, and the poor schmuck gets hauled off to the satanic altar at the abandoned church. Which leads to Mark's brother Tom getting embroiled in the plot. Tom's wife is a psychic who has flash visions of the future, which is represented by clips of scenes that haven't happened yet. After she has a case of the shrieking freakouts over what her third eye is seeing, Tom gets news that his whole family is missing and goes out to map spec to try to determine what's going on. Eventually, the viewer finds out that Corbus was a Satanist in the Boston area in the 1680s. He was burned at the stake for witchcraft justifiably, and he curses everyone around him, but until he gets his book back, he can't give his various followers' souls over to hell. And since that's the whole point of setting up a devil cult, you can understand why he keeps trying to get the book. Since he spent three centuries and change looking for it, but never pried up any of the Preston's floorboards, well, maybe Corbus deserves to have to keep looking for so long. <laughs> Eventually, Tom and his wife and a doctor of parapsychology make their move on Corbus, digging up a really big Fabergé egg with trapped Puritan souls in it. They break this vessel, which makes all of Corbus' followers melt in a prolonged and enthusiastically disgusting scene. But it's the mid-70s, so we're getting a bummer ending, whether or not it makes sense or not. Hail Satan, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> it's your fault. Uh, so, why did you put this one in the hopper? That's a fine question. I really put it in because it's the sort of thing that even after you hear about it, you're probably not going to believe it. <laughs> It's, can confirm. <laughs> you told me about this movie. I did not believe it. You showed it to me. I did not believe it. I still kind of don't believe it. Yeah. 
I bought my own copy of it. I've watched it twice now. I still don't believe it. It's a cult movie about the occult with a cult. <laughs> now, if only it had been made late enough to have a soundtrack by the cult. Ooh. So, uh, the other kind of reason that, uh, that I find it interesting besides being completely bonkers mess uh, and a waste of so much talent. It's got an interesting place in the kind of history of satanic film. You know, I'm not, not saying it's a unique place, but it's an interesting place. You know, this is 75 that it comes out. And... You know, we've just seen horror shift from being the the kind of stuff where it's, um, you know, Vincent Price leering and, you know, maybe a skeleton shaking to, you know, suddenly horrible, horrible things are happening to people's bodies. <laughs> um, uh, satanic films in particular are starting to get starting to get more out there you know we've gone from the days of whispering that you know whispering the name satan or suggesting that these people wearing black aren't beatniks but satanists to stuff more like um well this is roughly contemporary with to the devil a daughter which could also be called Nude for Satan, even though that's a different movie. Um, but, you know, we we had these big, big movies like Rosemary's Baby, where nothing happens. It's it's I'm not saying it's not worth a look, but like if you're used to a modern satanic film, you're going to be severely disappointed by Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of opens the door because you actually have, you know, the, the child of Satan and then you get, you know, the omen in there. And so things are starting to get a little more hectic and out there. You've got the exorcist, you know, things are starting to get gooey. And so somebody decided that de the devil's reign would be a great, great uh, uh, box office smash <laughs> to fit into this uh, burgeoning demand for uh, for Satanism. And it's really, it's more like the Death Wheelers with an all-star elderly cast. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not going to compete with the, the, the big satanic films. It's, it's got this really conflicting mish, mishmash of uh, influences and tones where sometimes it seems to be, you know, taking it all very seriously. But then, you know, you see Ernest Borgnine in his goat Sona and... <laughs> It's like, wow, A, amazing prosthetic effects for 75, but B, uh, no, that's just ridiculous. 
Well, how else are you going to know he's evil and also in league with demons other than that he's wearing scarlet robes, having has an inverted pentagram amulet, and he's throwing devil horns. By the way, Ernest Borgnine throwing devil horns is going to be my, my Twitter icon at some point. <laughs> and that's just it. It's like... Ernest Borgnine? <laughs> Ernest Borgnine is freaking metal, man. <laughs> like, I love Ernest Borgnine. He's he's Best Actor great... Academy Award winning Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> Looking yes. ridiculous. He's just so miscast here. <laughs> and you know, from listening to Tom Skerritt's account of uh of the set. There are very good reasons for the tonal whiplash. Uh, for instance, the fact that that he and Robert Faust, who we've also already covered uh, a film by in the Abominable Doctor Fibes, <laughs> uh, they saw this as a lark and were like, "This is goofy as hell. We're going to make this funny." The producers were not happy with that. <laughs> Made them reshoot everything. Wow! After two days, uh, and all of the older actors, you know, your Ernest Borgnine, um, Ida Lupino, uh, Eddie Elbert, um, you know, yeah, these these uh, Keenan Wynn. I mean, these are name actors. Um, you know, big, big time kind of, you know, yeah, you know, wow, they're in a movie. Maybe we should. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like none of them were pleased to be there. Um, (laughs) Several people were were complaining about it having a, a negative effect on their career. I don't know how they got William Shatner at his peak ego. Um. To 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 come in as you know the schmo brother the, who the gets doofus his... who gets yeah <laughs> doofus who gets himself moked out I believe four separate times over the course of the movie yes. and illusion fools him and it just keeps going like you you think he's written out in the first act no he's got more suffering to do yeah they're gonna beat up Shatner some more well this seventy five would have been. Between the the cancellation of Star Trek and the first movie. So yeah. he might have just thought, you know, what the heck, paycheck. True. I have seen other films from people where they very obviously thought, what the heck, paycheck. <laughs> but Tom Skerritt, an actual actor. Who... Yeah, but this was reasonably early in his career, too, wasn't it? It was, but he'd already worked with some phenomenal directors on on great films. You know, he still had Alien ahead of him, mind you, but he'd already worked with Robert Altman. Uh, <laughs> and I... I think what what this really is is an object lesson in your career is gonna go where it goes. <laughs> into every uh, into every life, the devil's reign will must fall. fall. <laughs> Something like that. I mean. I actually put some film clips in about that, so we'll we'll get to it, loyal <laughs> listeners. Don't worry, we'll get to it. But 
if you're around long enough you're in some stuff you know some stuff that's great some stuff that's good some stuff that's okay and some stuff where you have a long sad talk with your agent <laughs> that would be like uh the talk i had with uh with the real estate agent where it, it it was it was my realization that for the money that we had we were not going to get the house that that we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> See if you'd been in more movies that you'd just taken for the paycheck. Exactly. You know, I uh, the the most famous example of that 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 I can think of right now is Michael Caine in Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> where someone asked him, you know, why were you in that? And he said, I've never actually seen that movie, and by all accounts it is terrible. I have seen the house that being in that movie bought me, and it is wonderful. <laughs> And uh, Steve Buscemi said the same thing about being in Armageddon. Someone asked him that at some appearance, and he said, look, I wanted to buy a house, okay? <laughs> and if you have been dedicating your craft and being in, you know, interesting movies that are not necessarily massive hit movies, mm -hmm. I really can't blame somebody for going for the paycheck. Uh, another one. Uh, Inchon with an exclamation point after. Oh, God. <laughs> had uh, Lord Lawrence Olivier as General Douglas MacArthur, and he understood what was going on with the production of that film and therefore refused to leave his trailer unless he'd been paid. <laughs> and so there were people bringing briefcases full of cash to the set via helicopter to pay Lawrence Olivier so that he would leave his trailer. And apparently he was one of the only people to be paid for making that movie. There's lots and lots and lots of different ways to get ripped off in Hollywood. But one of them is not getting the, the paycheck nailed down way ahead of time and, mm -hmm. and having enough clout to say, if you don't do this, I'm in my trailer and I'm not in your movie. Yep. <laughs> so I I think like this would have come out right uh, a year after The Exorcist and a year before The Omen. So okay. devil movies, devil movies were in the ether. This I think this is just the great American ripoff machine, like trying to steal a march on other bigger movies, uh, similar to how Roger Corman got Carnosaur in theaters one week before Jurassic Park. <laughs> and also starring Laura Dern's mom. Oh my god! <laughs> I did not know that. Corman. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's. I mean, it show business is business, and getting you know, having something. Maybe this was the script they could get made, or the pitch that they could get made at the time, and. Robert Faust was just the guy who wanted to get a movie done. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many things that spend time in development hell. There's so many things that don't actually get made. I've, I've heard that for every movie that gets made, there's 10 screenplays that get bought that go nowhere. For every screenplay that gets bought that goes nowhere, there's 10 things that get optioned that never even get made into a screenplay. That there's yeah. just so much going on that, and things can fall apart for thousands of reasons 
uh, you know, if an executive gets fired or quits for a better job, everything he had in development can get the plug pulled. <laughs> and that's just some guy with an MBA who, who's decided that he wants more money for saying no to getting movies made. That's not even things like, you know, the health of the actors or the weather where you're filming or anything like that. There's so many different things mm-hmm. that can shut down a production. So, yeah, I... I don't feel qualified to say why exactly this got made. It's just that this is the one where all of the tumblers clicked in the right order to get a movie produced. I just don't understand why. Like, I understand Faust going, hey, this is a chance to work for Hollywood instead of, uh, you know, making making films. He was doing really well in England. and distributing through through AIP and doing quite well with them, mm-hmm. but this was an actual American production, right? Uh, and wasn't it a major studio? Yeah, so you know, it could have been a gr- a, a good chance. Uh, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. He rolled the um, dice. It came up two. <laughs> it came up, <laughs> and there we are. Yeah, guys, enjoy the rest of your career, you bozo. But imagine the movie we could have had if he'd had his his way, right? Oh? If he had fibes to the hell out of Devil's Reign. Oh yeah, if they'd made it super campy and weird. Uh, this yeah, <laughs> I don't think the seventies really knew they were the seventies at this point. Uh. Like, like it wasn't like, you know, New Year's Day, January 1, 1970. Okay, we're the 70s now. <laughs> you know, 1970 was really 1960, 10. 1980 is really 1970-10. That, that it's not like once Reagan got reelected. Yes. Okay. 1984 is the 80s. We're in full swing. Give me a guitar and one of those sunglasses that's just a big line of plastic. <laughs> Sh- Ooh, big yeah. shoulder pads and a Devo hat. Let's do this. <laughs> like this was when the seventies were starting to be the seventies. This is going to sound meaner than I mean it, but it's kind of a way to, for, <laughs> that I, I looked at the film, you know what a cargo cult is? Yep. <laughs> well, in case our listeners don't, a cargo cult was uh, a, an isolated tribe or group of tribes that got contacted by the modern Western world during World War II. And once those guys got what they needed, which is usually an airstrip on a remote Polynesian island, they left. And the the tribesmen had had like a literal encounter with a hyper advanced version of things. They might have thought it was the supernatural or or just much more advanced people. So they built uh, bamboo and wood radio towers and airstrips and Quonset huts to try and bring them back so that they could have better cargo. Uh, you know, antibiotics, chocolate bars, uh, you know, ready to, you know, spam in a can, anything like that, that they just absolutely had never seen before tool steel for, for tools and knives and anything like that. They just literally had never encountered it or never known that was a possibility. So they mimicked what they had seen without understanding what made it work. Mm-hmm. There are filmmakers who do this. There are filmmakers who duplicate. Uh, for example, the the disastrously received uh, series of The Stand. They they apparently told it out of order because Lost told its story out of order. 
Oh. So they had all the everybody introduced after the end of the world instead of having a really compelling beginning of watching everything fall apart. And then every so often they do a flashback like, oh, right. Yeah. Plague. Yep. Wow. It's an intensely bad choice for that material. But they did it because somebody else did it without. And the people who made the stand didn't understand why that was a bad choice for the material. Wow. If you don't understand bad choices for your material, you won't understand good choices for your material either. And there's this one kind of played out for me like a cargo cult movie. Certainly in the writing, like it makes no sense. Yeah. Like how was he burned at the stake and is still running around? Mm hmm. Well, he says something about you can't kill me because my soul is eternal and all you're doing is destroying my body. But generally destroying the body is pretty effective. Yeah. <laughs> and they never really they don't define like monsters should have rules if you want to have a monster movie. If you want to have a horror movie about a sorcerer, you need to know what his powers are and how to get around them. Yeah. And. Instead, what we have are, you know, the flashback. And I genuinely like this this trope of cast all the actors as their ancestors. It's a real hoot yes. in, the, in the Haunted Palace. And, like, I think they just sort of got it from that. The, uh, the psychic flash forwards to everybody's doom, they kind of got from Don't Look Now. The idea that they would not really explain what the story is about until the third act and have a protracted special effects sequence at the end i think they got from 2001 a space odyssey where like they made a list of all this stuff that that was a really effective movie that was really you know made a ton of money people liked it the critics liked it and then they just sort of took stuff from it without understanding how to stick it all together mm -hmm. uh like the extreme gooeyness from it i i'm positive <laughs> that's because of the exorcist oh god yeah and it yeah. goes on. They really nailed goo. Mm -hmm. And it went on and on and the, on. There are way more and better executed melting effects in this than the Incredible Melting Man. And yeah. that one was all about, hey, man, you want to see a dude melt? <laughs> so, yeah, it's really when I talked about it being uh, when I mentioned it being a mishmash. I mean, that's just it. Right. It's got these aspirations in all these different directions. It wants to be a gross out. Mm -hmm. um, and hey, it, mission accomplished. It did that. Wow. Yep. I mean, that ending is phenomenal. I love it. Um, that, that just everybody melting everywhere. Yeah. Um, listening that, to the. I actually uh, want to ask have you ever seen the Australian movie Body Melt? No. <gasps> okay. Well, uh, I mean, that's, that's what it is right there in the title. Hey, man. You want to see a dude melt? It's from the early 90s, if I believe. Do they I drink remember. Australian Viper? I don't know. I've never seen it. I've only heard of it. Badmovies.org mentioned the, the sheer number of times you get to see somebody's esophagus in it. <laughs> so if melt. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome, Sean. <laughs> Uh, I'd, I'd also like to mention one other thing. There's a counter prayer. There's like the the outsider freaky weird religion being chanted and prayed by Ernest Borgnine, the Satanist. 
mm-hmm. and William Shatner, the the Christian, is praying a counter prayer and botches it and loses. And that to me says that these guys saw the Wicker Man. Mm. Like again, they're taking things from very effective movies and then they're just dropping it in as if they're effective on their own not because they're part of an overarching story that has themes well that can that can really happen when you've got you know these are these are three you know this was the result of three writers yes and you know looking looking at their cvs they're not impressive um there's a film clip about that too (laughs) yeah so it's three three people who don't really know what they're doing right all doing it in different directions three amateurs pulling on the rope in in some direction which you know it could work Mm -hmm. Uh, i i i know i've seen cases where it has this is not one no well like something like el mariachi that was the first screenplay from robert rodriguez it was the first movie he directed as well Mm -hmm. but he had an idea of what he wanted to do yeah and it was just his voice and right right he was consistent Uh, and there was executive meddling where they're saying no play it completely seriously well yeah i mean when you've got an experienced genre director (laughs) telling you (laughs) this needs to be like this in order for this to make any sense at all and the producers are like no no (laughs) i am serious producer this is serious film yeah there the yeah um you know there are rumors of uh you know, a couple of people interviewed about it, uh, hinted at rumors that that there was a uh, mental breakdown on Faust's part during this. Mm. Uh, I have not seen any authentic confirmation, but it seems to be a consistent memory among people on the crew. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just it's the actors all appeared to be going at the same pitch by and large. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's one of those things. I'm sure I, I can't think of any right now, but there's times where there's been wildly varying tone from actor to actor. Yeah. And and that's something that this film really avoids. Like what I may sound like I'm damning it with faint praise, but there is some stuff that works right. The goop mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, I did I did really enjoy that every time one of the cultists gets shot, they got shot twice, and like orange goop comes out of one bullet hole and green goop comes out of a different bullet hole. Like yes. they have tanks of, of toner or something or sherbet where like, oh man, they got me right in the lime sherbet container. <laughs> Hecky dang, man, I'm not getting up from that. <laughs> it it did look like melted sherbet or or something like that. It uh, really did. The blood did, but the melting like bodies looked much more solid turning to goo. And there there was just some really great work with that. The uh the effects in this like I for anybody that kept this on their resume, I think it was the effects guys. Yes. Uh, and, uh, I, I should have written his name down. There's an interview with one of them on the, on the disc I've got. Uh, and he was talking about the, the, the fact that they had, they did not have a lot of money. And so they were just wringing everything they could 
out of what they had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you can kind of tell. Hey, and... guys, let's put on a show. A disgusting, <laughs> disgusting show. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm aren't... okay with that. You know, the prosthetics, like I said, is genuinely fantastic job. With, yes, with, yes. With the, that. The the cult all loses their eyes. So there are people walking around with dark black pits where their eye sockets used to be. And it's done by putting a pretty small prosthetic over their forehead and eye sockets so mm-hmm. they can see and what they're doing while they're walking around. But the way it's done and the way it's lit, they look like empty eye sockets. It's uh, especially like 1975 is a pretty early time to be doing great work with liquid latex like this yes it's some some fantastically handled material yeah it's it's uh the effects are are really outstanding uh, especially for 75 but a lot of them still hold up really well Um, oh yeah you know i don't know what satanists look like uh when you shoot them (laughs) uh but well uh, apparently they leak orange or lime sherbet yeah you know, yeah. so that's cool. nobody got it in the grape, I guess, <laughs> or the raspberry. Uh, I'm also this is this couldn't possibly be uh, cargo cult filmmaking because the movie that I know did this for a particular reason was from 87. But in Evil Dead 2, they specifically made all the monster goop like bright blue and orange and green and yellow so that they didn't have very much blood in the movie. Yes. Because they'd had a lot of problems with the ratings board and the amount of, of uh, red dyed corn syrup that they were throwing around on Bruce Campbell's face. So, yeah. so for the sequel, they decided to make it openly cartoonish. And like, nobody's got orange blood. Nobody's got green blood. Uh, the Graboids and Tremors bleed orange when they, they fall off a mountain or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's to get the the smallest amount of blood in the movie. Because monster goop is not blood, and the ratings board won't treat it like blood. Yeah. Ratings board. Jeez. (laughs) They clearly don't. I mean, this is a PG movie. Right, but at the time, they only had, you know, G, P, G, R, and X. Yep. (laughs) And this this was what, I mean, imagine your parents took you to see this when you were eight or something. Jeez. But... You know, the devil's reign, it's got all it, you know, it's rated PG. It's about a cult. It has uh, it has people yelling at each other in the desert and then eventually melting. I mean, I'm not Daniel Roebuck, so that <laughs> didn't happen. But <laughs> but yeah, this would have been a great one to see as a kid. Yeah. One like... of those terrifyingly bad ideas from from the benign neglect of 70s parenting. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like it would have worked. Like it would have been an, a really legit terrifying movie mm. uh, as an eight year old, I yes, think. Yes. Um, <laughs> I can do it. It's kind of good that the two brothers never really have much of a scene together, not both as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because I can't imagine a worse sibling pairing acting wise <laughs> than Tom Skerritt and William Shatner. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Just, I mean, there's a lot of intensity there in both, both places, but it's, it's very different intensity. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. <laughs> I was actually reasonably surprised. There's a couple times that that William Shatner yells Corbus, but <laughs> generally he's pretty sedate. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, to the point where, you know, his dad collapses into goop right in front of him in the rain. And he just kind of, you know, he's like, come on, Ma, let's go back inside. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happened. <laughs> I think my paycheck is in there. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of it, like at the end of the filmmaking process, like when the actors are done filming, the movie's still in the hands of the editors. It's still in the hands of the effects guys. It's still in the hands of the print lab. I mean, yeah. they they did the best they could do under the circumstances and then crossed their fingers and thought, okay. Um, Please don't let this damage my career. Yeah. <laughs> According to Skerritt, John Travolta was very concerned that his career was ending before it began. Before it began because he was in it. Well, the good news is for that, you know, to the extent that there's some good news there, honestly, with that prosthetic covering the top half of his head, yeah. uh, it doesn't really look that like the chin dimple's still there. Yeah. But it's not like you can go, hey, it's uh, it's John Travolta, obviously, in this crappy Satan movie. Uh, I did when I was telling one of my coworkers at the courthouse that I was going to be watching this. I did my incredibly bad John Travolta impression of "Yeah, go get him! He's a blasphemer!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, give him a good part. Give him a good director. Like he's uh, he's extraordinarily good in Greece, and he's extraordinarily good in Blowout, and those yeah. are very very different movies. Yes. Yeah, give him a part that he can work with and a cast that he can work with. And there's a lot of really great stuff he can do. He is actually an extremely talented actor. In this movie, they literally asked him, wear these robes, look ominous, and your one line of dialogue is, get him, he's a blasphemer. <laughs> then we're going to put makeup on you and hose you down with a rain machine, and you lie down and go, ah, I melt. <laughs> Can we talk about The Devil's Rain? Sure thing. So this is a movie that has a lot of rain in it, perhaps brought by the devil, but that is not The Devil's Rain. <laughs> <laughs> the Devil's Rain, as near as I understand it, <laughs> is the rain inside of the soul jar? I think so. I, I you know... There's a common phrase, you know, people in hell want ice water. What I think it is, is just, you know, more horrible punishment in hell. Here, here's all the rainfall you could want in the inferno. And it's acid. And it's acid. <laughs> I figured it would just be hot. Well, that too. But, you know, if you have just the right uh, atmospheric conditions for that, you could also get hot hail. Hot hail? Hot hail. <laughs> The devil's other precipitation. Now, see, if it had been treated like Flash Gordon. <laughs> well, there's just a big button labeled Devil's Rain. Yes. <laughs> Earthquake, typhoon, hurricane, hot hail, Devil's Rain. Just run down the console and pop all of those. It's just great. It's like hitting all the stops on an organ. Uh, yeah, it's, it's some sort of magical punishment. And... 
it's it's about as clear as anything else in this movie, which is to say not a ton. Uh, and I think that you were mentioning earlier three screenwriters, two of whom were first timers, at least uh, all of. And I think they were all just trying to copy bits that had already worked with things uh, to, to cast it back to year one of the fiasco family. Ooh. Uh Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness, is <laughs> one part of an anthology film until it's a Halloween ripoff with the comedy police from Last House on the Left. It, Tim Ritter was just taking things that, that he liked from other movies and recombining them into his feature film. And he was 18 and in Florida, so he's got two excuses. <laughs> Florida director. <laughs> Florida man slasher movie. And... The, when you watch these things that are from early in people's careers, you can see the kinds of things they responded to. You can see the kinds of things they liked. Uh, and maybe that was some, maybe some of the weirdness of the movie and some of the not making particular senseness of the movie is that the director had made several feature films before, but he was working, he was working from blueprints made by people who didn't know how to construct a screenplay yet. Mm -hmm. So, it's it's a film. It's certainly a film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is not... Marvin uh, and Clive off to the side going, can we fix that in post? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like this... This feels like what you would get from, <laughs> from the people making the movie in the movie of... And God spoke the man. Yes, of. yes. That that sort of poverty row, relatively competent but really not great horror flick. You know, someday someone's gonna fake up the entirety of Alpha Deatha Decapa, and I'm gonna watch it. It's such an intriguing film to me because, like, it's it's not simply bad. There's there there are moments that are so effective and there, there are times when you think that they can pull it together and there are some great performances mm -hmm. and it doesn't fit together at all. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's like a peanut butter, banana and spam sandwich where it's like, this might have worked. Some of it does work. <laughs> not all of it not all of it <laughs> no it uh, you know if if i was gonna get a burrito you know you get your chop you get your diced onions you got your salsa and your your you know spiced beef and everything in there and the tortilla wrap like those are all good things uh if you have a banana split it's got bananas and ice cream and chocolate and whipped cream and sprinkles and everything those are all good things they don't work together <laughs> Or if they do, it's for very specific tastes. Yes. <laughs> Counselor, I, I admit the point. Yeah, it just, it's, I didn't hate this. This is the second time I've seen it. And it's also the second time I've seen it directly because of you. <laughs> and I'm Hey, sure you I'm showed gonna... it to me the first time. <laughs> Did I? Yes. I had never heard of it. I remember it differently. I thought you I thought you chucked this at me. I thought well, you chucked... <gasps> Corbus! Corbus! 
Well, thankfully, he's not going to look for the book. I've got it on a bookshelf, and we all know he's a big, dumb idiot who doesn't look in the obvious places. <laughs> like, somehow safely tucked underneath the floor of a basementless house. In a rainstorm. In a rainstorm. <laughs> well, I've, I'm willing to go along with it and say, well, obviously, it's a magic book. It's a Grimari, if you believe the guys from Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. <laughs> Well, one of the nice touches was that as soon as uh, Mark Preston signs it, a new page appears in the book right? with, with his name on it in right. big stupid letters. <laughs> yeah, for a book where it was supposedly inked in human blood in the 17th century, that was some really magic marker looking lettering. <laughs> and that's another like, you know, oh, look, special effects failure. Like. Obviously, the if the makeup guys had done the book, we would have gotten the Evil Dead Necronomicon seven years early. Yes. But we didn't, so we got a big book with big, bold, you know, 1975 English lettering in it. Like, it didn't have any of that Germanic <laughs> Gothic script or anything. It just might as well just say, Steve, with an exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, and and that's fine that one of the reasons we watch these movies is for the incongruity between what the movie believes it is presenting and what we actually got <laughs> this one i did not put in the hopper to talk up in hopes of people uh discovering it and and enjoying it it's a warning to the others <laughs> <laughs> don't no. sign your name in the book of the devil's reign which I, mean, I have now done twice I, it just keeps happening and uh you'd think that they'd have some kind of mechanism in place to be like oh duplicate yeah um, <laughs> did you really sell your soul twice look man it's a seller's market <laughs> what i sold was an option <laughs> You get to be in the bid. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what What do you got for me? So, so yeah, I mean, this is this is a uneven movie that has a lot in it that I legitimately love, uh, uh, and a lot in it that I just shake my head sadly at. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, if it, if this sounds like something you need to see to believe. <laughs> <laughs> it is available <laughs> in spiffy blu-ray yeah, uh, i've just edition. got the regular old dvd but it, the the dvd print looks great yeah the uh the red robes just genuinely pop right off the screen uh there and and the melting goo effect thing like usually the better quality the home release the the worse favorite does for the makeup effects and this looked really good. Yeah. Yeah, they did such a great job of pumping that shit out. Yeah, it's, yeah. And they pretty much had to invent how to do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> if there were experts in that at the, at the time, they did not know any of them. <laughs> right, none of them were working on this movie. So let me ink my name in the book of the Projectionists Union, and we can do some film clips. Lisa Todd, who plays Lilith for a brief appearance, 
had an uncredited appearance in Paint Your Wagon and played Sunshine Corn Silk in 66 episodes of Hee Haw. After this film's awful inception, Robert Faust worked mostly in television, directing four ABC after-school specials and episodes of six different network series. The poster's tagline, Heaven Help Us All When the Devils Reign, is also spoken in the film's trailer. Whether written or spoken, the phrase refuses to make grammatical sense in English. Two of the film's three screenwriters, James Ashton and Gerald Hopman, have no other film writing credits. Hopman was an associate producer on Evil Speak, though, a movie about a bullied military academy student using a computer to summon a demon. Makeup artist Ellis Berman Jr. worked on seven different Star Trek movies and TV shows, as well as Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, John Carpenter's Starman, and he also designed the sloth character makeup for the Goonies. So somebody was able to use this as a color card. Yeah. William Shatner was no stranger to the horror genre, having also been the lead in Kingdom of the Spiders, the TV film The Horror at 37,000 Feet, and the Esperanto-language scare flick Incubus. Incubus. Ida Lupino, who played Mrs. Preston, directed The Hitchhiker, the movie that the Fiasco family discussed in episode 40 of our podcast. She also appeared in the Bert I. Gordon-directed giant rat movie Food of the Gods at the end of her career. Keenan Wynn, who played the sheriff, was also in Parts, The Clonus Horror, two episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker, Orca, one episode of Tales from the Dark Side, and a laser blast. <laughs> If you'd like to see him in something fantastic, he's Colonel Bat Guano in Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bob. Yes. Anton Zondor LeVay, the high priest of the Church of Satan, owned a lion that was credited as Togar in the film Roar, discussed in episode 46 of Fiasco Family Movie Night, guest starring the Atomic Weight of Cheese podcast members. Yeah, for for all that the trailer and advertising elements may point it out, like Anton LaVey, High Priest of the Church of Satan, is in our movie. We haven't even mentioned him. He's just some dude with a goatee and a big mask. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. do anything. He's credited <laughs> as a technical advisor or something, and I, I, I hope that he cashed that paycheck four different times at four different banks. Tom Skerritt's laughing fit on hearing that about that during his interview about this movie. Like, that is an all-timer moment for me. Oh, is fantastic. him losing it. <laughs> uh, what was it like working with the high priest of the Church of Satan? I never actually met him. Yeah. Was he there? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Well, okay then. The film was shot in Durango, Mexico. Uh, that state refers to itself as Tierra del Cine, the land of film. Other productions lensed there include the original Magnificent Seven, Conan the Destroyer, Ben-Hur, Romancing the Stone, The Wild Bunch, El Topo, and the James Bond film License to Kill. And that's Film Clips! So that's lots of little bits and bobs about the film. We also, traditionally, try to find out some other movies from other people tangentially related to some aspect of the movie we're covering. Fiascoids.
We're going into the recording studio again tomorrow night, and we'd like to know your recommendations for films that feature a favorite occult prop. And as always, we warn them that we might be reading them in the show. We always do. We always warn them. We always read them. <laughs> they inked their names into the book of fiasco. <laughs> and now we can use their answers. Brian Clark liked the Shisa statue that frees King Caesar from a mountainside to fight like boom in Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, as well as the golden ceremonial weapons from Stuart Gordon's Dagon. Both very, very nice choices there. Yeah. Mike Bakovin of the Atomic Weight of Cheese likes the Necronomicon from the Evil Dead series, as well as the Infernal Puzzle Box from the Hellraiser movies. And that puzzle box is iconic. Yeah. In in the short story, it's just all featureless lacquered wood, but putting the eldritch symbols and things on it was a definite excellent choice for the adaptation. Lisa Mary of the newly arrived Bad Movie Bunny podcast says the evil down the street got its occult props at Party City, but they did all right. And Art of Devil and its sequels do black magic right. Never even heard of either of those. <laughs> I know we've got some viewing to do. Oh, heck yeah, we'll get to it. Eric J. Peterson likes The Mask from The Mask, <laughs> the 1961 scare flick that was the first Canadian horror movie. An in-depth examination of this movie is available on our sibling podcast, A Part of Our Scaritage. Link in the show notes. William Donahue goes with the Scarab from Kronos, the Guillermo del Toro movie. It has character, even though it doesn't speak or even move on its own. Yeah, that yeah, is that's wow. That's an astonishing prop. And, yeah. And yeah, it's it's the axis around which the entire movie revolves. Kelvin Hetley gives us a triple play with the Ark of the Covenant from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch. <laughs> From Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and Bubo the Mechanical Owl from the OG Clash of the Titans. <laughs> I like two of those things very much. <laughs> uh, Joel Ruggaber says Luke Skywalker's lightsaber counts, and if that isn't sufficiently occult, the Holy Grail of magic items is the Holy Grail from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Rich Conroy likes the potion bottle from Death Becomes Her. Oh. Yeah. As I recall, it's a prop that's enhanced with, like, swirly magic fog inside it. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's a good one. Gavin R.R. Smith goes back to the Evil Dead series for the Kandarian Dagger from the second movie, specifically highlighting that a knife that looks like a spinal column is totally rad. Yes, it is. Yeah. Tim Girolami likes the Staff of Ra from Raiders of the Lost Ark and the ring with the unholy seal of Dracula from Dracula vs. Frankenstein. I've seen one of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> those are great choices. Yes. yes. I believe well, he the also... Staff of Ra, especially because the bad guys only have half the inscription so they get it wrong. Like, it's a really yeah. occult knowledge thing that they bit. Chad Plambeck, also from the Atomic Weight of Cheese, mentions the Akaza from Crash, the Charles Band movie. 
There are so many films called Crash. There's a lot of movies called Crash. (laughs) (laughs) What the Uh, hell did David Cronenberg do with a little gremlin figure? Yeah. The Akaza is a little gremlin figurine which turns a wronged woman's husband's car and wheelchair into homicidal machines. Charles Band's Crash. Indeed. I have an inordinate fondness for the crap machines that uh, are Charles Band's production companies. Empire Pictures and all those. I I never really watched their kids' movies with like five minutes of stop-motion dinos in them, but I, I admire his commitment to always producing something. (laughs) always producing something just a constant output he was basically like a one-man golan and globus (laughs) and hey i liked robot jocks dave thomas our man in the hemel hempstead wraps it all up with the runes that get people mauled by a giant demon in night of the demon slash curse of the demon depending on what side of the atlantic you're on also puts in a sympathy vote for whatever prop Christopher Lee is baffled and irritated by at the start of the Gorgon. If you're not listening to Dave's podcast about Italian crime horror movies, Due Signore in Giallo, you should check it out. So, have you got an occult item to talk about? Well, I was originally going to go with uh, the computer from Evil Speak. Oh, um, which was mentioned in the film clips. And then I thought of doing the uh, blood container from Demon Knight. Oh, that's an excellent choice. And that's another really cool looking prop. I really love that prop. It's a great prop from a great movie. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized the one I'm most in awe of is the acetate record in trick or treat oh my heck that's 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 the most sean choice that could have been made this is of the many many movies called trick or treat this is the one from 86 directed by charles martin smith and uh if you've never heard of this one the basic plot is uh, it, it goes big into the the, the whole um, heavy metal is Satanism kind of stuff. And uh, this big heavy metal star uh, kills himself in a ritualistic manner, which somehow transforms his record, the, the, the acetate uh, original of his of his record to possess powers to bring him back more powerfully and uh so uh the the hero of the movie is one of his fans uh this teenager who's uh like super excited because the local dj uh has managed to get this this acetate album and is going to play it and he starts playing it and literally all hell breaks loose and it is such a fun film it really is it it leans so hard into the satanic panic that by treating it seriously it makes it as ridiculous as it actually was yes love that movie hard tone to pull off 
love that movie love that prop love all of the cameos yes <laughs> yeah it's it would not surprise me if we did a mini sode on it if not like even a full-on analysis at some point yes <laughs> heavy metal satanism in the movies and analysis by the fiasco family <laughs> so uh so tim uh what's uh what horror movie prop did you bring us uh well i had a couple of somebody else already mentioned it so can't do it uh (laughs) the puzzle box from hellraiser which is Mm. just fantastic and the best and they even had one movie where they turned a space station into a gigantic puzzle box so so you know that's a cool one uh i have a sympathy vote for the necronomicon not the evil dead one but the one from the haunted palace which has necronomicon on the cover in big gold letters (laughs) but that's a movie where you get to hear vincent price say necronomicon uh and and that is a genuine pleasure uh dr strange had the cloak of levitation and the eye of agamotto which were you know hey what if we threw 30 million dollars of special effects at magic Mm -hmm. but but what i really want like the most occult in the terms of hidden and the most occult in the terms of revelation is the wicker man from the wicker man where nice. where the lead and the audience suddenly have a horrible horrible realization of what's been going on the entire time and why it's been going on and what's about to happen when you're helpless to avoid it that is so good heck yeah it's it's my choice for a cult in multiple reasons and it's got christopher lee well, before we smash this uh, recording on the ground and release everything, uh, <laughs> uh, let's uh, see what's next on the randomizer. The randomizer? That What is this? this uh, sixth of seven episodes that have all been yours? I mean, randomly. I know it's random. Later on, you're going to pay for it because you'll have to watch a bunch of mine in a row. And I know there's a Tom Hanks one in there, so... Yep! Uh, you have only the randomizer <laughs> to blame for how this is going to shake out. Oh, no. <laughs> so, what do we have next? Hit hit the button on the Devil's Randomizer. Oh, what do you know? It came up 666. What a shock. <laughs> What's that you... correspond with? Uh, well, it's, it's one of mine. Uh-huh. it is a movie no one has heard of i I have have absolutely no idea this existed until you put it on your list (laughs) it is skin game from 1971 oh god 1960 wants to talk about race yes as a major (laughs) studio production yeah so yeah, it's uh, we're going to learn all about racial equality from James Garner and Louis Gossett Jr. as they play a a uh, James Garner plays a man who who sells his friend Louis Gossett Jr. repeatedly <laughs> so that they can get the money and then Gossett escapes and they run away. <laughs>
this was a studio answer to, to racial equality. My goodness. Well, <laughs> I, I've never seen it before. I'm legit looking forward to it. I think it's something that a, a modern audience coming to it with modern sensibilities is going to go, oh my god. So you found the universal cringe. Yeah, and and you know we'll we'll talk about this next time, but I kind of want to talk about that cringe, yeah, and, and uh, lean into you know why you know a little bit of how cringe happens. So uh, that'll that'll be a, uh, our awkward conversation next time. <laughs> <laughs> so until then, thank you for listening to this episode of Fiasco Family Movie Night. If you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us, however you can. The Fiasco family is part of the Megaphonic Network, and you can find us at megaphonic.fm slash fiasco, alongside other fancy podcasts, such as A Part of Our Scaritage, which plums the depths of Canadian horror movies. We're also at facebook.com slash fiascobrotherspodcast, and on Twitter as at fiascofamilypod. If you enjoy the show, consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month and your immortal soul to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, totally boss discussions cut from the existing episodes. That's at patreon.com slash fiascobrothers, or support the network at patreon.com slash megaphonic. Both options support us, get you access to bonus content, as well as the Infernal Realms themselves, and can give you an invite to a members-only Slack to hang out with all the Megaphonic hosts. In hell. Infernal Realms not available in all states. <laughs> we'll see you yeah, again. Yeah, for example, in... the State of Grace. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you again in a few weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. Go get him, he's a blasphemer. Yeah.